everybody. If you're visiting with us today, we want to welcome you to the President's class. We are studying in the Gospel of Luke, and if you'll take your Bibles, we're going to open there in Luke chapter 23. It's good to have Phyllis O'Beer back at the piano. He was out for a while. If you are a new member of the Sunday School class, we're having a new member's luncheon next week right after class in this room. It will be served uh, by people who want to serve it and uh, <laughs> want to serve you. So if you're a new member, we're having a new member's luncheon in your honor. We're going to tell you about the history of the, sun the Sunday School class and what we do and how we're organized and so on. You should be getting an invitation. If you don't get one or you've just joined and you haven't gotten one, uh, come anyway. Okay? You might want to just tell me or Linda Sewell or, or Lynn Street and uh, we'll make sure that we have a place for you. The pastor's sermon today was really excellent. It really was. And uh, it was on forgiveness. It was a very important subject. If you haven't been there, I hope that you will uh, uh, go to church at 11 o'clock and uh, just allow the text in Genesis 45 to really minister to you. Very important message that he gave today. Uh, I just discovered that this fall, in August, I'll be teaching a class on the kingdom of God. It's going to be a block class at 11 uh, at, on Mondays at 1045. So if you're interested in sitting in on that class, mark that on your calendar. It's going to be Mondays. 1045, it'll go for 15 or 16 weeks. It'll be on the kingdom of God. I'll take the kingdom of God from the beginning when God tells Adam to take dominion over the earth under his rule all the way to the point where Christ takes dominion over the earth in the millennial reign and everything in between. So it's going to be on the kingdom of God and how that affects us today. So that's going to be on Mondays at 1045 beginning in August. Okay, Luke chapter 23. Last week we saw that Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was denied by Peter, his brave apostle. He was reviled by soldiers who arrested him and mocked him. And he was tried by the Jewish high priest and the council, the Sanhedrin, and found guilty based on his own testimony. It was his own words that condemned Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Those words are found in Luke chapter 22 and verse 69. This is what we read last week. Jesus said, Hereafter, or from this point onward, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. This means Jesus claims that He's going to be exalted to the highest position of authority in the universe only God will be above him. And by saying that, he indicates that all other authorities will be under him, including Caesar himself. Including the high priest, including the Sanhedrin, they'll all be under Jesus when he's exalted. And so the Jews, the Jewish leaders say in verse 71, well what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own Mouth, And so they find him guilty of a crime against a Jewish law, especially uh, claiming to be the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And they know that if he happens to be the Messiah, that their days are numbered. 
And so what they did was they hauled Jesus before a Roman court. They want Jesus put to death, but they don't have the power themselves to put him to death. Only the Romans can do that in this occupied territory. So we pick up at chapter 23 and verse 1. Then the whole multitude, that's the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, arose and led him to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea from 26 to 37 A.D., at the time of Jesus' death. Uh, He was a hard-nosed, ruthless politician, self-serving politician, whose main goal was to maintain law and order, known as the Pax Romano, Roman peace. Rome was a nation of laws, and it was a nation of order, law and order. We've heard that in this country. And to maintain the law and order, he would use any means necessary, even if it was was force. And we know from back in chapter 13 that uh, Luke tells us that he actually killed a group of Galileans at one time, and he mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that were going to be offered on the temple uh, altar. And so this is a ruthless man, and he will stop at nothing to maintain law and order. Now, Pilate is in Jerusalem during the Passover. His headquarters is Caesarea. But during Passover season, he would come with some extra troops just in case there was a riot. Jerusalem would swell with Jewish pilgrims during Passover. 250 to 500,000 people. And it was a volatile time and he wanted to make sure things didn't get out of hand. So he would move from Caesarea near the Mediterranean and he would come down to Jerusalem and he would station himself at Fort Antonio which was right on the edge of the Jewish temple. The southeast or southwest, I forget, edge of the Jewish temple. That became his headquarters in Jerusalem where the soldiers were stationed. So verse 2, we have the accusations that the Jews bring before Pilate regarding Jesus. Look at verse 2. And they began to accuse him, that's Jesus, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, or Messiah, King. Now it looks like in verse 2 that there are three charges. In reality, there's only one charge. And the charge, in verse 2, is he perverts the nation. How does he pervert the nation? That's those next two. He tells people to stop paying taxes to Caesar. He claims to be the king himself. Now, in order for us to understand this, we're going to need to read between the lines because there's more under the surface than it's on the surface. In order for us to understand this passage, we need to go below the surface. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the people who bring this charge against Jesus are the Jewish council leaders. 72 members of the Sanhedrin, made up of the high priest, the Jewish political elites, religious elites of the city. And the Sanhedrin works hand in hand with the Roman government. 
Don't think, well, these are just the Jewish leaders. They handle the temple. Oh, no, they do a lot more than that. They work hand-in-hand with the Jewish government. Jerusalem, Palestine is under Roman occupation. But the Roman soldiers can't control everything. Hey, can we control everything in Iraq? In Baghdad, what do we need to do? We need to use our police force. We discovered that the hard way, didn't we? So the Sanhedrin was the Jewish leaders, and they guaranteed Rome that they would maintain law and order in this city. And they wanted to make sure things never got out of hand. And here comes Jesus, and things are getting out of hand. It looks like he's stirring up the crowds. So you need to understand who the Sanhedrin is. Now the high priest, who's probably the main spokesman, Caiaphas here, in order to understand his position, now he's a high priest of the temple, but guess what? He's also a political person. No such thing as separation of church and state in Rome and Israel. The high priest, even though he's Jewish, even though he's the head of the temple, was appointed by Pontius Pilate. Now think about that for a second. So whose side do you think he's on? Jesus' side or Pilate's side? See, these guys work in cahoots with Rome. And the high priest's main job, you know what it was? To make sure taxes were collected from the Jewish people and placed in the Roman coffers. That was the high priest's main job. Now he had some religious things to do, but that's, that's how he worked within the Roman system. And so the charge is sedition. He is perverting the nation. That means he's leading the nation astray. He is moving them out from under Rome's leadership. He is trying to cause a rebellion. He's a revolutionary. He's he's an enemy of the state. That's the charge. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Now, how is he trying to subvert the nation? Well, look what it says. In verse 2. Number 1, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, if this is what Jesus is doing, this is a major charge because non-payment of taxes to the Roman government was a disavow that Rome had any right to rule over the Jewish people. In other words, uh, by not paying taxes to Caesar, you were denying that Caesar had authority over you. When you pay taxes, guess what you're saying? The people you pay taxes to have authority over you. So not to pay taxes means that you don't accept their right to rule over you. Now, there are a lot of people who think that these are trumped-up charges. Jesus never said that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. You know why? Because he said what? Render under God that is God's, and render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But there are other scholars who say, no, this is a legitimate charge. When Jesus said, render under God the things that are God's, and under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you need to understand that statement as well. Because there's a lot that lies below the surface there too. Render under God the things that are God's. What's God's? Everything. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What's Caesar's? Oh, not nothing. Nothing. See, so uh, if that interpretation is right, then we have Jesus. Am I off or am I on? Still on? Okay. 
then we have Jesus forbidding taxes to Caesar. Uh, now the second charge is, and that's just a controversy. We don't know whether that's a legitimate charge or not. But look at this. The second charge is that he says that he himself is Christ, a king. So the first charge is saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar because he doesn't have a right to rule you. We don't acknowledge his right to rule the Jewish people. The second charge is, Jesus says he's the king. He's the one who has the right to rule the Jewish people. Does that make sense to you? Now, once you understand that, things come into probably a proper perspective. Because as I said before, there was no such thing as a separation of church and state back in Bible times. That's an American concept. Did you know that? That's part of our Constitution. Now, don't get hung up on the words church and state here. I know that was words from Thomas Jefferson. But you know what I'm saying. There wasn't a separation in Bible times between church and state. They went hand in hand. You couldn't separate them. Caesar was the king. He was the emperor of the world, the known world. But he wasn't just a political leader, he was a religious leader. Because Caesar, according to Roman ideology, was chosen to be the ruler of the world by Zeus. He ruled under the god Zeus. And his title was Son of God. So he's not just a political leader, it's a religious political combination. You cannot separate church and state. Now, Jesus claims to be the rightful king of Israel. He reigns under God, Yahweh. He is the son of what? God. So you can't separate religion and politics, either in Israel or in Rome. So when Jesus says he's a king, it doesn't mean he's just a king of our souls. It means he has a right to rule in every area of a person's life. So those are the charges. Now look at verse 3. By the way, Jesus was not arrested by saying, if you believe in me, you'll go to heaven. Rome couldn't have cared a hoot about that. He was arrested because they saw him as a seditionist, as one who subverted the nation. He's arrested on a political charge. You say, well, he just came to be the savior of our souls. Well, see, you're trying to make, you're trying to impose an American understanding of separation of church and state here. Jesus is not only a religious leader, he's also a political leader. Do you believe that? When he sets up the kingdom of God on earth in its fullness, you think he's going to be ruling over the world politically? Or do you think he'll only be ruling over your soul? Will every nation be submitted to him? Will he be the new emperor of the world? Yeah, he's not just a spiritual savior, he's a political savior. The end game in God's plan of salvation, the end game in God's plan of salvation is that Christ is going to come down, he's going to sit on the throne, and he's going to rule the world. And that's a political realm as well as a religious realm. Amen. Now I want you to know something. He's sitting on the throne right now next to God. And he's ruling this world right now. 
Amen. Whether people realize it or not. Whether they recognize it or not, he's the rightful ruler of this world. Whether Putin realizes it or not, he's got a ruler that he's going to give an account to. Jesus is not only a spiritual ruler, he's a political ruler, and all political realms are under his rule right now, whether they recognize it or not. If they don't bow now, one day they will. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. And the government, what? The government shall be on his shoulders. So don't get into this separation of church and state, this American concept, and impose it on the scriptures. The moment you do, you'll fall into all kinds of heresy and error. By mistake. Not knowingly, but by mistake. Okay, now I've preached. Now look at verse 3. <laughs> okay, I've said that. Now look at verse 3. Then Pilate asked him, said, Well, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, do you have divine authority to rule? Because if you claim to be king of the Jews, we're, we've got a problem. Because Caesar's supposed to be ruling Israel. The different Herods are ruling on behalf of Rome. If you claim to be the king, well, you're in trouble because no one's appointed you king, buddy. See? That's why I say when you read these, you have to read read the real intent of that passage. And so uh, Jesus answered him and said, uh, as it is as you say, or literally just you say it. You said it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't affirm it. He just says, well, that's what you're saying. Makes no claim. So in verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Why doesn't Pilate find fault in this man? Because they haven't produced any evidence. All they've done is accused. And in this case, Jesus didn't give any confession. He didn't admit anything. He said nothing. He didn't do like he did in front of the Sanhedrin in verse 69. He just didn't say anything. You're saying it. So Pilate doesn't have any evidence in a sense to hold him. He said, so I don't find any fault in him. Look at verse 5. But they were more fierce. They were more insistent. That Sanhedrin started screaming, stomping their feet, saying, he stirs up the people! Teaching throughout all of Judea, all of Palestine, beginning from Galilee all the way to this place. In other words, Pilate, you don't get it. He's a troublemaker. You're making a mistake. Pilate wants evidence. They haven't brought the evidence. But notice what they say. He stirs up people from where? Beginning at Galilee all the way to this place. He's not some local yokel just causing trouble here on the Passover in Jerusalem. This guy is going up and down Palestine He's a national revolutionary. Hey, you're, you don't know what you got in front of you. You got a troublemaker here. As I read this, I was thinking, well, is there anybody in modern times I could think of? And I was thinking of uh, those of you who lived back in the 60s and 70s. Remember, you know, when Martin Luther King started, he simply uh, was in you know, Birmingham. But then guess what? It was okay when he was in Birmingham. They could bring out the hoses and squirt them. But when he went all over the nation, 
That's when you knew you had some trouble on your hands. Not that they could accuse Martin Luther King of anything, because he was preaching, I have a dream. When all God's children walk hand in hand, I've been to the mountaintop. I may not get into the kingdom, but I can see it. But once he went on the nationwide, that's when there were real problems. And they're saying like that, they're saying, hey, this guy isn't some local guy that... We didn't just bring him here to you for you to slap his hands. This guy's in trouble. He's going he's to hurt the entire nation. He's subverting the nation. Well, when Pilate heard of Galilee, oh, that Jesus had been speaking up in Galilee, he asked if the man were Galilean. And evidently they said, yeah, he's from Nazareth. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Now, what we have here is we have Pilate not having any evidence against Jesus. And he says, well, if he's from Herod's district, and Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He uh, was over about a fourth of the Palestinian area. You've heard of Herod the Great, his father, the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a little baby. Uh, This is the Herod that killed John the Baptist, had his head cut off. Him? He's not a nice guy either. Uh, Pilate figures, well, maybe Jesus has broken some laws in Galilee that Herod could handle. Let's pass this political hot potato off to Herod. And so that's what he's going to do. And uh, if he's broken any laws particular to Galilee, then Herod can deal with it. Now, Jesus' ministry, by the way, is... Uh, portrayed by Luke in a certain political light. And I think we need to take a look at that. So I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 3 just for a moment. show you something. Uh, I think you'll remember this verse, I think. And uh, look at chapter 3 and verse 1. This is when John the Baptist has come on the scene. See, uh, 3 1. I'm in Matthew. How did I get to Matthew? I moved, I moved four books. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Now look what it says. Now, Luke 3. That's it. You got me. Hey, and you're getting better talking to me. I don't make a fool of myself for five minutes before I find out what's going on. Okay, now look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the emperor of Rome, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, we've just seen him, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and we've seen him, Philip the tetrarch of Etoria, and the region of Trachoritus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, what we have here, and of course there's John the Baptist, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. So what we have is the ministry of John and Jesus put in political light. And here it is. Tiberius was the emperor, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, 
And Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, Luke puts this political picture in his book so that we will know that Jesus is born in a certain political environment and when he starts making claims, there is a potential for confrontation with these very people. And uh, that's what you're going to have. The confrontation that we see in chapter 23 is set up because that Jesus is born and his ministry is uh, in this political environment. So you need to understand that. By the way, this Herod, notice he has a brother named Philip, a tetrarch from another region. Herod steals Philip's brother, wife. Or steals Philip's wife. It's his sister-in-law. And he has an affair with his sister-in-law. And he marries her. He marries Philip's wife. And it causes a split in that family. And it's not a good split. And uh, it was when John the Baptist said, hey, you shouldn't be married to your brother's wife that cost John the Baptist his head. Remember that? Now let me show you another verse. I think it's important. Look at chapter 9 of Luke. John the Baptist is dead. Look down at verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by Jesus. It was done by him, Jesus. That's his healings, the exorcism, all the miracles that Jesus had done. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, had risen from the dead. He thought maybe this was John risen from the dead that was doing these things. It scared Herod. Maybe John was back there haunting him or something. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen from the dead. Herod said, Well, John, I beheaded. Can't be John. But who is this whom I hear of whom I hear such things? Now look at this. So he sought to see Jesus. Herod wants to meet this guy, Jesus. He'll get his chance in chapter 23 where we are. Pilate makes it possible because Pilate transfers Jesus over to Herod. Now turn over there, back to chapter 23, and Jesus is now taken over to Herod who is staying in a palace. He has a a palatial uh, home in Jerusalem. And Look at verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. You see that? He'd been wanting to see him since chapter (laughs) 9. He was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him, because he heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus. He wants to see Jesus do a miracle. Now, not because he wants to follow Jesus. <laughs> He's just curious. Who is this guy that's <coughs> this healer who's going up and down my district doing these things and causing such a roar? He says he wants to see some spectacular miracle. Okay? He's just interested in the spectacular. So Jesus is brought before him. Now remember, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod to be examined. 
Jesus is before Pilate for a trial. Pilate wants to see some miracle. Uh, and Jesus just stands there. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't raise his hand to a miracle. He does absolutely nothing. It probably drives Herod crazy. Now look at verse 9. Then he questioned him. With many words. We're talking about a long interrogation. But he answered him nothing. He just stands there and looks at him. Like a sheep. Heard that from Isaiah? Solid before it shears. He just stands there quietly. And I imagine that Herod is just beside himself. He's angry. Jesus won't perform a miracle. He won't defend himself. He won't do anything. And I think it just confirms in Herod's mind that Jesus is a fake. Because this guy, that's probably what he thinks anyway. Now look at verse 10. So Jesus answered nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Hey, this guy's upsetting the nation. It's the same thing that they did with Paul. They do this before Herod. So this is a trial, and uh, they really put it on thick, make all these accusations. Then Herod, with his men of war, because they said, he claims to be a king. Well, Herod was a king. That wasn't too good. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So uh, they begin to make a fool out of Jesus. They make, they try to humiliate him and to show that his claim of being a king is ridiculous, that he's just a joke. He's just a faker. And uh, when I read this the other day, I was saying this is like a mocking scene out of Saturday Night Live where the actors put on a parody and the reason they do it, they'll pick a person and they'll put on a parody to show that the person that they're mocking is not to be taken to, or not is not to be taken seriously. They did it with Sarah Palin, didn't they? They did it with Dan Quayle, didn't they? Doesn't matter who. They'll just pick a person, then they'll put on this big skit, and they'll make that person look absolutely ridiculous in Saturday Night Live, and they mock them and make folly of them, and and uh, this is what happens in this scene. And they put a crazy robe on him, and probably a, a some sort of crown that's stick in his hand, and he's, ah, look at the king. Now, the crazy thing about this is, look, Herod does it. This is Herod with these men did it. Herod, the king himself, participated in this. I mean, that's, the, that's below the dignity of a king. You know, I can see these immature soldiers making a mockery of Jesus, but can you imagine the king himself getting down to this level? It's, ah, look at that king! You know? Well, we've had presidents on Saturday Night Live. I guess I should say that it's so outlandish. Probably started back with Herod, and we continue to do that. <laughs> but anyway, they put this ridiculous costume on Jesus, this king's costume, to make a mockery out of him, and in this costume, he led back the power. So that's the scene. And that day, verse 12 says, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously they had been at enmity with each other. So there's a positive outcome of this. Pilate and Herod become good friends. 
Before that, they were at odds with each other. Because each one claimed to be a little higher in rank than the other. But finally, they enter into some sort of alliance here. And, uh, and this alliance is forged by former political rivals. And so we see, well, you see that politics makes strange bedfellows, I guess is what you see. These are a bunch of odd, this is the odd couple in politics, Pilot and Herod. Uh, but it proves the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And suddenly here we have this common enemy and now Pilate and Herod are made friends. Now what this does here is this fulfills one half of Jesus' prophecy that we just saw a couple weeks ago. I want you to look back at chapter 18. Chapter 18. And notice the prophecy that Jesus gives. <clears throat> and look at verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside, that's the apostles, and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. That's happened. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And here's what they'll be. First, he will be delivered to the Gentiles. And he was. He was delivered to Pilate. <coughs> And he will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And we see that that's already happened. That's the half of the prophecy that's happened. Next week we will see he will be scourged. And then of course he'll be killed. We'll see that he'll be crucified. And then three days later on Easter he'll be raised again. So half of that prophecy... Because that's all in red right there. Half of that prophecy has been fulfilled in chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. The other half will be fulfilled in chapters 23 and chapters 24. Jesus will be raised from the dead. He will be exalted by God to his right hand, just as he said that he would. He will be declared king of the universe, and he will be given God's authority as God's right hand man. Now, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1 begins at the birth of Jesus where the angel declares that Jesus is a king. And the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' rightful place ascending into heaven to take his position at God's right hand. And uh, he reigns today. That's what we were talking about in our prayer. He's the, he reigns today whether people realize it or not. Amen. And he calls each one of us to give our allegiance to him as our rightful king. We'll pick up in chapter 23 in verse 13 next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can uh, come to you as a king who has all power in the universe and therefore all authority and uh, can do whatever and you can do whatever you want to do because of your power and your position. And that's why, Lord, we can come to you for healing. We can come to you for deliverance. We can come to you for forgiveness of sins. We can come to you for eternal life. We can come to you for bravery and courage in times of need. And you will give us all that we need to live under your reign. Oh, Lord, help us to be, as Drake said, good ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.